In our lives, we have boundaries, whether it be a fence, someone who is protecting their property, you have locked doors, you lock your car after you leave it to go to the store. But when it comes to your own spiritual life, what kind of restraints or restrictions do you have? That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today's podcast. So turn to First Corinthians chapter 10. Let's get into it. friends, welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. Blessed to be with you guys as we continue our study here in 1 Corinthians. I pray you are having a blessed day as we enter into a new chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is podcast 243. And I just want to say a shout out to all of our continual downloaders, listeners, prayer warriors, donors, people who continue to make this podcast, this opportunity that we have as a Christian community around the world to grow in our knowledge and our love for God's word. This isn't a place where I preach at our audience, but as a brother in Christ, we come together, open the infallible word of God, the everlasting word, God himself revealed to us, my friends, what we refer to as the inspired word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And we have the, the pleasure and the joy, and might I say devotion to read and to learn and apply his word. So I pray this has been a blessing to you guys as it's been a blessing to me. So now we are turning into chapter 10. So at this stage, we are we are coming to an end, my friends. We're coming to an end to this this book study, I pray it's been a blessing. As always, if you've missed any previous episodes, you can always go to wherever you get your podcasts and make sure when you do that, we it would mean a lot to us to leave a review. And if you love this podcast, there's another podcast that I do with Edify. It's on Edify Podcast Network with Christian Post called Challenging Conversations based off a book that I wrote several years ago. So you can get your copy as well. Just go to standstrongministries.org. We have articles and videos and the books that I've written. Eight, I believe, up to this point. So we're blessed to be able to, to publicize those things, equip the church, embolden Christians to live, to reinforce biblical truth in people's lives. So I'm excited to be transitioning into this particular passage now because, and I've been meditating Quite some time, I think for the last month, I've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and now I've been moving into 1 Corinthians 11. So it's just an opportunity to share what God has been showing me in his word. And again, verse by verse, looking exegetically, giving proper interpretation to God's word as best as we can here on this podcast to show what the word is speaking to it. Like in this case, what Paul is saying here from the Holy Spirit in, in, in illuminating our lives. And so this is an interesting particular passage because as Paul was just talking about in chapter five, excuse me, chapter nine in verses 15 through 27, where we left things off and that the title there was running with purpose for the gospel's sake. And one of the things Paul was talking about there was the diligence and not to being disqualified. And this is interesting now because when you see what Paul is going to start doing now in this chapter, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13, it actually makes sense. Remember, being disqualified, least you be disqualified, he says, when you've been put to the test and you failed. 
Well, what Paul does now is he's going to go back to Israel, how they were put to the test. And unfortunately, they, on multiple occasions during the 40 years in the wilderness, they failed. So he says here in chapter 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. Now, we obviously know verse 13, many of us very well. I pray that we live it every day, right? But let's go back to the beginning when Paul uses this phrase that I don't want you to be ignorant or I don't want you to be unaware. He uses this also in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, verse 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. So in Romans 1, he's telling the Romans about the gospel essentially and natural law. And he doesn't want them to be ignorant. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul didn't want them to be ignorant about the things to come, future events. And so Paul often uses this to draw out an important truth. So like this particular passage that I just read, Paul's going to lay out an important truth. Now, of course, every aspect of the scripture is important. But he's drawing out a point off of what he just laid out in chapter 9. And so he goes out of his way to educate the Corinthians on Jewish history. And so what he does is he goes back now here, and this is why chapter 10 is such a a important filler and also not just a transition into the next uh, chapters 11 into chapter 16, but it also is a bridge and it complements what Paul's saying and it kind of like pauses in in this period where he's been making this case about being above reproach and not causing people to stumble And so he wants to now tie in chapters 8 through 9 and proceed to recall the miraculous and the rebellious history of the Israelites. So this is kind of unusual. But again, what Paul does, just like when he uses Abraham as an example, we see in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, Paul's using Israel to convey to the Corinthians who are Gentiles and say, listen, our people of old, they did not get with the program. They failed they abandoned God. They didn't trust his faithfulness. And so he, Paul's referring, number one, to the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt. The fact that they were guided by God through the wilderness and even the crossing of the Red Sea that we go back in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22 and chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. 
He talks about the cloud and the Red Sea. Those are two miraculous events that depicted not only God's deliverance of his people when they cried out for help and he heard their prayer, but also his protection against the Egyptians' army and all the tribes around them to lead them into the promised land. And yet, because of their rebellious spirit, because of their critical spirit, because of their lack of faith, they began to commit a lot of sin. And idolatry is what ruined them. They turned away from God and began to worship other individuals. Now, this is also significant because what Paul says here is that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. This is a very confusing phrase and I've looked at a lot of commentaries and even looked at Jewish commentaries to see with a reference of what they're talking about. Now, obviously, let's first do this. The word baptize he uses here does carry the idea of to be immersed, right? We also see that being used in Romans chapter six as baptism is a symbolism of the renewal, the, the newness of life that we receive, not through the water itself, but that's a representation of newness of life. And it represents the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And this word baptized to immerse, it's a reference to Israel's affiliation to Moses as their spiritual leader. That's what this means, being baptized into Moses. Because they were under his leadership, they were under his guidance. He was the prophet. He was the ultimate shepherd that God used and is a foreshadowing of Christ. So when they're passing through the Red Sea with Moses, it symbolized that the Israelites were being baptized into the power of God. And that power of God that they were entrusting in the leadership of Moses, that was what delivered them out of bondage. Remember, it was Moses who stood against Pharaoh and his false prophets. And this same figurative language that's portraying this union that Israel had with Moses is signified in baptism. And this is what Paul's trying to convey to the Corinthians, that we are one in Christ. So when, you're, when we're going to be talking about finding restraint in your life, we have to realize that we are not our own. In Romans 6, 3, and 4, Paul poses this question. And then he proceeds to answer it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when he talks about in verse 3 that we ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, so notice he's using the baptism of Moses, this is figuratively, that was a representation of what Christ would come to do in the future. Again, Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus. That's when Paul starts using the term spiritual drink, spiritual rock that followed, and that rock was Christ. So let's dive into what this means. So again, if you go back into the wilderness time frame of the Israelites, what did God do? We know they were guided by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was a symbol of God guiding them. The law was amongst them. We're going to see in that in a minute. This presence was there. And this miraculous food known as manna was, was given to them in Exodus chapter 16. And we know that the rock that gave the Israelites water symbolized what? Life. And so the rock appeared at the start of the Israelites wandering, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 17. And also, catch this, the rock appears at the end 
before they enter the promised land in Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. And what's interesting, my friends, is that in Jewish interpretation, the traveling rock, it acted as a metaphor for Torah. That is the law. And Moses is the father of the law. And Moses is a foreshadowing of who? Jesus. And Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what's amazing about this is that it, it that the spiritual food, the spiritual drink, the spiritual rock, when you look at this interpretation here, it's representing the wisdom of God that is active because it's portable. It goes everywhere. And it's working not only with the Israelites, which is sustainable, but just as God fed the Israelites with manna, and gave them water, those spiritual symbols represent God's provision for his people and giving them salvation through Christ. So this phrase, rock was Christ, now many biblical scholars, they'll see the rock in the Old Testament as a theophany of Christ. And what that means is that the rock, it, you know, the, 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 the object represents a type or a prefigure of Christ. The Biblical Theology Study Bible puts it this way, quote, Jewish tradition deduced from the reference to the rock at the beginning in Exodus 17 and at the end in Numbers 20 of the desert journey that the rock followed or accompanied the people of Israel. When Paul speaks of a spiritual rock, he indicates that he does not think of the physical rock in the desert that gave water. That rock was Christ. The rock is interpreted symbolically. The gifts of salvation that God provides for his people are given through Christ. Just as Paul transferred the term Lord from God to Jesus Christ, so he transfers the term rock from God, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, Deuteronomy 32 verse 15, Deuteronomy 32 verse 30 through 31, to transfers the rock, the term, from God to Jesus. The commentary goes on to say, since he described Jesus as a mediator of creation in chapter 8, verse 6, he may also be thinking of the pre-existent Christ. Paul's main point is the early history of Israel. Though sustained by God's grace, the Israelites were destroyed in the desert due to their idolatry, end quote. So that explains what ultimately, if you and I are to see the symbolism of what the wilderness wandering look like. That's the cyclical nature. And this is what we're going to be talking about is we have to put restraints in our lives, my friends, as we live for Jesus, who has freed us from sin and death, who's delivered us from our bondage. And that's what he says here now in verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown the wilderness. So God does all this for the people of Israel and yet many of them refuse to follow him. So despite his provision, the Israelites grumbled against God and they took it to Moses. They took it to Aaron because they didn't want to obey God. And remember, by not listening to Moses, they weren't listening to the Lord. And now there's a parallel passage in Hebrews that, that actually describes this. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, it says this, there, there, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom 
was he provoked for 40 years, was it not? With those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So then what we need to do is we need to go back to Numbers 14 because we're told there that there were only two Israelites, remember, who were rescued from Egypt and that entered the promised land. That was Caleb and Joshua. At that point, all the previous generation that left Egypt, they all died. And it was their children, some of their grandkids that survived under the leadership of Joshua. The Bible tells us in Numbers 14, none of the two, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. So this is where Paul then feeds into verse six where he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And what he's saying here is that, again, Paul's applying the lust of the Israelites. And he's using this as an example. That word example here for us is typoi, where we get the word type. And it's it carries the idea of also of a warning. So he says, now these things took place as warnings for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Because they weren't, to, they weren't satisfied with God's provision. Now, let me say this in, in, in this lesson today. To put restraints, if you will, in your life, you have to be under the protection of God and want it. When you don't, like the Israelites did, they turned to their lusts. They craved for what they believed was better in Egypt in bondage than what God was providing them miraculously. Go back to Numbers chapter 11, 4 through 34. So because they desired evil and weren't entrusting God, we, to restrain from pursuing evil, we have to put our faith and trust in God. He says, do not, uh, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down, ate and drank and they rose up to play. And what Paul does is he goes back to Exodus 32 verse 6 and he's portraying the Israelites that, who were celebrating their sin after creating and worshiping the golden calf in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 32 of Exodus. If you go back to chapter 8, remember Paul issued a warning about eating food that was offered to idols. Well, it goes back to what, what were the Israelites doing in the, in, the, in the wilderness, specifically the Hebrews. They were offering food to idols food that God gave them and they were giving praise and recognizing that these are the gods that carried us out of Egypt and the food that we're sacrificing to them is because they have given us these provisions the Zondervan illustrated Bible backgrounds commentary says this the application for this lesson from history is for those Corinthian Christians who feel but they could still attend festivals in the sanctuaries and precincts of the colony, including the sanctuary of Poseidon at Ishthamia, and yet be loyal to the Lord. In Corinth, pagan festivals included the sacrifice of animals and parts of the offerings were consumed by the participants, end quote. So no, there is no compromise. Everything that we have, my friends, and this is where the restraint comes, that we are not to give in 
to greed. We are not to give in to lust. We're not to give in to certain desires that dis, are dishonorable to the Lord and try to justify it. That creates even more sin. We must not cheat on our spouses if you're married. You're to honor the marriage bed. Hebrews 13 verse 4. That's why Paul says here, we must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. So notice the pattern here. When there's not restraint in some small things, it can lead to a lack of restraint in bigger sins. They then became public to the degree where they were committing sexual acts in public, defaming the tabernacle, God himself. If you go back to the incident that Paul's referring to in verse 8 and Numbers 25 verses 1 through 8 and Numbers chapter 31 verse 16. This is when the Israelite men, they were seduced by the Midianite women. And again, because they didn't have restraint in their life, because they weren't caring to be under the provision and fearing the holiness of God, they succumbed to sexual morality. So when we say, oh, they were seduced, you know, it was hard for them. Well, notice there was no restraint in their life. When I say restraint, I'm not saying that you're punishing yourself like you hear of people of old that were in monasteries to try to restrict themselves from having lustful thoughts or any desire that wasn't honorable to the word of God. That That's, that's not biblical. You don't beat yourself because you have bad thoughts. So you have a physical desire, so you beat yourself physically with a different desire, a different feeling to try to offset that desire. We, we are not to succumb as the Israelites did to sexual morality. And notice what they did as a result of it. It even led them to worship pagan idols. So not only did they do it when Moses led, was led up to the mountain and was gone for 40 days and they thought they'd lost their leader that they didn't even want to follow in the first place. So they collected all their wealth that they took from Egypt and they made a golden calf. And later on, because of a lack of restraint there, They commit their lot. They commit sexual acts. So you notice this progression. Now, Paul brings up this blasphemous incident because he he's making an assertive statement that one, this is what happens when you are compromising and you have a lack of restraint in your life. That you're going to give in to not only eating food that was offered to idols, but you're also socializing with people just like the Israelites did. They begin to compromise. They're being seduced by Midianites because they're compromising their values. They're fellowshipping with people they shouldn't. And the sad thing is, my friends, I can't tell you how many times I've had counseling sessions with people through the years and they're like, I just don't know what happened. I just, you know, and, and you know, we just slept together. You're like, really? You don't know how that happened? Well, let's go back. What kind of restraint were you showing? Listen, it's okay for you to admit that there is some temptation. That's what we're going to be talking about in verse 13 in a minute. But you can't start making excuses and thinking, I got this. But you're not following God. You're not under his protection. You're not fearing his holiness. You're not desiring to be holy. Now, as a side note, because I, I have to address this just in the uh, Christian apologetic space that I most of the time in the ministry deal with, there is an objection that people bring to this particular passage in here in verse 8 when Paul references to 23,000 fell in a single day. But then if you look at the reports, 
uh, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 9, it actually references as 20 to 24,000. Okay, so there seems to be a discrepancy here with this number. So let me first reference uh, a commentary, the, the, the Bible knowledge commentary, and what they say, and then I'm going to follow up after that. They say here, there's a possible solution to this apparent discrepancy in the death count found in Numbers chapter 25, verse 9, which is 24,000, and Paul's figure here that mentions 23,000, because remember, he's actually referencing this, this uh, incident in this in particular verse. So the commentary says, Moses and most of Israel were mourning the death of those who had been executed by the judges in Numbers 25, verse 5, or killed by an ongoing plague. Meanwhile, Phinehas was dispatching an Israelite man and Moabite woman in their last act of immorality. That's in Numbers 25, 6 through 8, which brought to completion God's discipline of the immoral Israelites and ended the death toll by, by, by a plague and that number is 24,000, a number probably intended as a summary figure. But also there's another explanation of that 24,000 uh, to Paul's 23,000, and that is the former included the leaders, whereas the latter does not. So again, it, it's not an error. There are explanations as to what we're seeing, the difference of 1,000 referencing numbers 25 in this particular passage. So there could be good explanation to that. And it doesn't just say, oh, yeah, they made a mistake. It's it's a it's not just a discrepancy. It's, it's a blatant error. Therefore, the Bible can't be trusted. When in fact, we do see some explanation that is reasonable as to why Paul references only 23,000 and probably is not including eventual deaths of leaders after verse 4 of Numbers chapter 25. So I continue now here in verse 9 where it says, we must not put Christ to the test. Now, the Greek word for test is ekperazin. It means to try beyond measure. And this is important because, remember, he mentions the destroy by serpents and he mentions the, the term destroyer. And what's important is because the spiritual rebellion, because remember, they, there was a lot of grumbling and complaining. And that is, a, that is an example, or that is, an, I would say, a... a demonstration of spiritual rebellion that was persistent among the Hebrew people, the Israelites, by exposing and showing their ingratitude ultimately against God. Now, what Paul's saying is when we do that, when we don't have restraints in our life, we're ultimately complaining against Christ. Now, remember, they were complaining about the manna from heaven in Numbers 21, verse 5. And as a result, in verse 6, they were judged by snakes. And if you go back to Numbers chapter 16, verses 46 through 50, this term destroyed by the destroyer, God sent an angel to judge the sin and rebellion of the Israelites with a plague. And in Exodus 12, 23, the angel sent to kill the firstborns in Egypt during Passover, that was called the destroyer. So it's interesting to see and this is, my friends, this is something that we just don't wrap our minds around, how intense this actually is and how we don't fear God and, and we take for granted the many, many countless blessings that we have. And this is important because this is where we, we end this particular passage because that's why Paul says these things happen as an example. They're written down for our instruction. So just because it happened to them thousands of years ago, we as Christians today, we're not to take this lightly. The life of Jesus Christ 
is the period of fulfillment when he's second, you know, when, he, when Paul says here on whom the end of the ages has come, God's in control. It may not make sense, it makes sense with us right now, right, right, you know, this moment today, listening to, the, you know, to this podcast right now. We may be trying to work things out, figuring out things, but we have to remember, we have to, that eternal perspective that we, that we know that Christ will come again, that he will ultimately fulfill, he will accomplish what he started in his first coming installment. Hebrews 9 verse 26 tells us, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, that is Jesus, once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So these are examples for us. And as we live these examples out and we follow them for our instruction, that gives us restraint. Because we're ultimately not only fearing God and under his provision, but we anticipate that he will make all things new. And we want to be a part of that renewing process. You know, that's one thing that motivates me in the ministry is, Lord God, help me advance your kingdom. Help me bring healing and restoration of people's lives. Now, in that process, it's ugly. You're going to get people who are going to push back, who are going to malign you, who are going to gripe and complain, just like Moses had. It's part of life. You can't be responsible for everyone's actions or lack thereof. And that's why Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As we do help people, we have to remain humble. That's a wise person is someone who remains humble. Verse uh, eight of chapter four, when Paul talks about somebody who's rich, don't boast in your wealth. And chapter eight, verse 10, he says, don't be prideful because you're smart. Don't abuse that knowledge. So we have to we have to take heed. So you can say, "Well, I don't do those sins. I don't commit those things. I can res- I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't have sex with people outside of marriage." Well, good for you. That's awesome. Praise God. But don't be Pharisaic about it. That's what Paul's saying. Then you say, "Well, you know, I haven't committed idolatry like the Israelites do, so I'm good to go." Well, no. There's restraint in your life that's preventing you. Praise God. But now we get into verse 13. Everybody has their particular areas of temptation that can lead them to sin or personal struggles that if we're being honest right now, as you're listening, whatever you're doing, if people found out, how embarrassed would you be? How ashamed would you be? Now that is not to cause you to feel so bad that you need to get your act together. I'm not trying to put you down, but let's admit for all of us as sinners, there are things that we have done that we wish we didn't do and we certainly don't want certain people to know about because we don't want to be shamed by them or what would they think? And that's what the Bible says here in verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you. Here's the thing. And this is something we have to repeat to ourselves all the time. Temptation is not sin. Giving into temptation is sin. Every single one of us is tempted. And if somebody says, well, I've been tempted with lust before. Now, maybe the results of that temptation led someone down a different path than somebody else. But, but, but all of us can say, oh, I've, I've, been, I've been tempted with lust as well. Maybe not be sexually, maybe be tempted in terms of lust for money, for power. But we all can relate to that. But here's the thing, my friends, without God's divine power working in and through us, no person is capable of resisting. No person, not one of us. 
is capable to overcome sin on our own. And that's why this word temptation in the Greek is perorosmos. And it translates actually here as enticement or even as a trial or a testing period. So there is no temptation that is unique to an individual. Every single one of us has faced, yes, various forms of temptation, but we can all relate. There have been times when you've been tempted. Remember, that's not sin. Now, of course, is there going to be temptation in heaven? No. But what we're saying here as a, as a Christian in our doctrine is that just as Jesus was tempted by the enemy in the fallen world, just because he was tempted doesn't mean that he was in sin. So in this world, because it's fallen, there will be temptation. And there's times where we've overcome it, praise the Lord. And there's times we haven't. There's times when you're resisting and it gets hard and you get support. The point is, I can relate to that in every stage of what I just expressed and shared with you, and so can you. But here's the thing. When we, when we are faced with various forms of temptations, there's no excuse for us just to give into it, whatever the temptation may be. Because notice there, there's also, there may be an enticement aspect to the temptation, meaning go flirt with this woman and you're a married man. Hide this cash and pretend like you didn't discover it, you didn't find it, so you can just use it and spend it on whatever you want and nobody will ever know. Whatever the temptation may be, that's an enticement. But it's also for us as Christians, a, a, there, it could be a trial. What are you going to do? Contemplating making the right decision. And so there could be a testing period to see that you, and that you will find resolve in your faith, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, knowing that though you may be tempted, you're tempted right now, God will give you the strength to resist whatever the temptation may be and you will overcome it in Christ's name. And also knowing as a Christian that God can use this temptation to purify his children. Now, Satan, on the other hand, he wants to use the temptation to lure you away from God and to enslave you. But you know what? As I close, let me, let me tell you what Paul reaffirms in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, showing us God's magnificent and faithful protection. He says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And I pray, my friends, that you would hold fast to that, that you would not let any form of temptation, but with godly restraint, you can overcome it. So I pray, my friends, this has been a blessing to you as we've been studying now 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Know that we are here to pray with you. If you have any questions about what we're learning in the Bible or what you're maybe learning outside of this podcast and you have uh, an apologetic question, we would love to receive your question. You can contact us by emailing us at info at If this ministry has been a blessing to you and you want to be able to give monthly to continue to support this outreach and this training mechanism that we've been blessed with, with this platform, Stand Strong in the Word, we would love to have you become part of our Stand Strong team. You can go to standstrongministries.org, click on the word donate, and we have a tax-exempt status there as a ministry of 51c3. All donations are tax exempt and you will be a part of a growing ministry that is teaching men and women all over the world, tens of thousands of you every single week 
the word of God. What a blessing. So thank you guys for participating and praying and partaking in the wonderful blessings of God. Until next time, keep standing strong in the word of God. Thank you.